to the latest edition of Insights with me, Dan O'Brien. This week, we'll be discussing how the role of governments in economies is growing across much of the world, what's driving that trend, and what the implications might be. In particular, today's guests will talk about how whole industries and individual businesses are being subsidized in Asia, the US, and Europe, uh, something that's a subject of much debate in recent times, and in particular since America's Inflation Reduction Act came on the global agenda. Joining the discussion from Asia is the chief economist for that region of Texas Bank and fellow of the Bruegel Institute in Brussels, Alicia Garcia Herrero. And from the US, we have Brad Setzer of the Council of Foreign Relations and formerly of US, the US Treasury. Brad hasn't joined us quite yet, but we expect him any minute. Alicia, welcome to you and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with the big picture, if I could. And I'd like to get your views on the role of the state in respective in your respective regions. Um, thoughts about how effective state intervention is, how the belief in state intervention has changed over time. Um, do people believe state intervention is more effective now in boosting economies, boosting economic growth, giving countries uh, an overall competitive advantage in, in, a, in, in a globalized or maybe less, not so globalized world. Um, from Asia, Alicia, would you like to uh, give a view on that as, as, both, as a European in Asia? Sure. So basically, there you go, the elephant in the room. This is China's state capitalism. And I have to say that although there is no proof that uh, China's economic success is related to its economic model as such, or at least the part that deals with uh, subsidization of the economy, state capitalism as a whole, I mean, the role of the state in production of goods and services, um, some think that that's the key for, for China's success. Uh, and it came to power. So there's a kind of a, a watering down of the role of uh, of opening up a reform uh, and 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 much more emphasis in central planning, and because of that, then the, basically the size the size of subsidies in China has only increased since Xi Jinping came to power. The role of the state, basically, the number of SOEs, the employment of SOEs. Uh, the value added actually of SOEs in, in the economy has only increased. So, so you know, is, is that related to, to China's slowdown or not is a big question, but the reading of course is more that because of China's industrial policy, China's number of say Fortune 500 has only increased. China is like actually now as we speak higher than the US and this, of course much much higher already than, than, than the European Union. So. If you think of it that way, correlation is, of course, not causality, as we know, but, you know, there's this reading that China's industrial policy has helped China, again, uh, put all of these companies out there in the Fortune 500, most importantly, dominate certain markets. Think about green technologies, for example. And, and because of that, I think the, the, the state is back. I mean, I wouldn't say only because of China. We've also seen the role of the state very clearly in 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 getting all of us out of the pandemic without a, certainly a recession, but less a recession of that we we would have had otherwise. Yeah. So there's also this pandemic issue that I think has brought um, the role of the state 
back to the agenda in the West. But yeah, but I would say with a rear mirror of China, I mean, is again, China uh, a success because of that or not? And finally, the energy transition. Yeah, the energy transition is a huge and and which needs to be led by governments because there's a lot of, uh, of course, um, moral hazard involved in, in this issue. And I think this is the third reason, if, if you ask me to, to list uh, the three most important in China's model, the pandemic and the green uh, transition. I think these three things are pushing all of us to uh, give in a much bigger role of the state uh, to the to, in our economies, and this includes the West. And 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 again, we I stop here and uh, happy to have discussion on this. Great, Brad. Uh, uh, welcome. In, in terms of those factors driving a bigger state, uh, would you go along with that? Would you add other factors such as changing intellectual climate? It certainly seems to me that the um, 1980s, the move towards free markets after years of interventionism, uh, belief in free markets, and, and, a, and I believe the state was not very effective, that though that those decades have passed and the intellectual climate is also changing, less hostility to the role of the state and greater belief that the state can do good things. Interesting in your perspective from the US on that. Well, I do. I do think there's been some evolution in the the views of, you know, at least the Democratic Party. It's uh, open to debate about whether uh, both parties have shared in this intellectual evolution. But there are certainly uh, uh, components of the Republican Party that are also very animated by similar concerns and uh, a concern about strategic competition with China, and thus are. Uh, being pushed more in an interventionist direction. I, I actually very much agree with the factors that uh, Alicia uh, set out. Um, I think the intellectual and policy evolution in the United States can't be understood without first a reference to China and the impact that China's successes have had on the perception of industrial policies uh, prospects. That isn't to say that China has always succeeded, uh, but in sectors like solar and solar photovoltaic uh, modules, China became quite clearly the, the dominant producer, uh, developing and expanding and improving upon, in many cases, fundamental technologies developed in the United States, transforming them, mass producing them, and becoming uh, an enormous global exporter. Uh, electric vehicles, batteries, China seemed to be taking the lead, not necessarily in electric vehicle design, but in the production of the critical materials that give uh, power to an electric uh, uh, battery that allows it to have long range drive a car. And there was certainly a growing concern in the United States uh, that China's uh, efforts to expand its semiconductor industry would pose a strategic threat to the U.S. And I think a growing recognition that the U.S. was sort of lagging the cutting edge of semiconductor production technology. That, that combined to create, uh, I think, a sense of vulnerability and to broaden the base, political base, uh, for some industrial policy interventions. But equally, the pressures from the green transition and the desire to have a green transition and a desire to have a politically sustainable green transition, one which more or less lowered costs rather than raised costs, 
pulled the United States or pushed the United States to uh, towards an approach that made more use of subsidies than might have been the case 10 years ago. Carbon taxation, I think it does actually have some intellectual merits. I think it actually does have a role to play in the transition. Uh, but as a political matter, there weren't votes for a carbon tax. And there were votes, just barely, for some significant subsidies to lower the cost of uh, green energy investments. And just specifically on that, um, on the Inflation Reduction Act, do, what's, your, what's your view on how effective it will be in either boosting the competitiveness of the US economy, boosting productivity growth, boosting capacity of the US economy, at a, at a broader level, and in particular at a sectoral level, do you think it'll it'll make a big difference for the US, or are we going to, in 10 years' time, look back on this and say this was, you know, there were some positives out of it, some negatives, but it, it wasn't a game changer? Look, uh, the easy answer is that it is too soon to tell. Uh, I think the scale and ambition of you know, the most important of the policy actions that the Biden administration has undertaken, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. The scale is actually on one level quite big. By US climate change policies, this is by far the most significant climate policy the US has, has enacted. Uh, I think the amount of uh, financial support to the chip industry would also be by far the most that uh, has come out of the US government. It, goes beyond the kind of the approaches adopted in the 1980s. On the other hand, as a relative to the scale of the US economy, these are not giant. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act subsidies are estimated to be uh, maybe uh, a third of a percentage point of US GDP in their fiscal impact, 30 basis points. That could be higher. They're, they're not as precisely defined as some subsidies. It depends on the uptake and use. But it is not a percentage point. Uh, the money that flows into the, the chip sector, setting aside the research and development component, is in the ballpark of $50 billion, uh, 20 basis points of U.S. GDP. Important at the sectoral level, not probably on their own, policies that will uh, completely transform the United States economy in the very uh, short run. But they should directionally uh, help the U.S. grow a bit faster, particularly in conjunction with the very necessary investments in core infrastructure that were also passed on a bipartisan basis. And certainly the intent is for these policies to make sure that the U.S. remains at the forefront of clean technology development, at the forefront and at the leading edge of the uh, semiconductor sector. But I would note that there is a, a component of both policies that is in a way quite defensive. The fear with electric vehicles was that China, which had led and pioneered in the transition, had a bigger electric vehicle industry than, uh, than any other country, had by far the biggest battery industry, was positioned to dominate the electric vehicle transition. And so the transition to electric vehicles could have been a transition away from North American-made automobiles towards autos, particularly electric vehicles, made out of a, a, a Chinese supply chain. 
And so a central goal of the Inflation Reduction Act is to make sure that there's a strong North American electric vehicle supply chain that meets U.S. demand and that there's an alternative battery supply chain to the current Sinocentric supply chain. With chips, the concern was that, frankly, Intel was no longer at the cutting edge and that the overwhelming majority of the most advanced semiconductors in the world were being made in Taiwan. And so from the U.S. point of view, there's a component that is just trying to have U.S. companies and companies producing in the U.S. back at the cutting edge of what is perceived as a strategically vital technology. All that's extremely important, uh, but I think it's not on its own enough to kind of radically transform your perceptions about how fast the United States economy can grow, in part simply because the U.S. is an enormous economy, and it is very hard for even very large and significant sectoral policies to change the overall trajectory. What it does likely do is mean that the U.S. is going to have a much bigger uh, electric vehicle industry, a much bigger wind and solar production industry, a much larger capacity in sectors uh, where without these subsidies, the U.S. might have lagged. So just to follow up, you don't see any downside. So 20 years ago, the general view was the state is no good at picking winners. Uh, industrial policy is outdated and old-fashioned. It misallocates resources. So it is, do you think that argument is completely dead and there's no possibility that this could actually really end up leading to a misallocation of resources and, and be self-defeating rather than in any way productive? Would you dismiss that sort of free market argument completely? I think on the chip sector, I would dismiss it almost completely because I don't believe it is in any way an accurate reflection of semiconductor production as it actually happened. It was an idealized vision of a world that doesn't didn't exist. The OECD has documented quite extensive subsidies in Taiwan and Korea. Obviously, China was throwing tremendous amounts of money at its semiconductor industry. Uh, the the notion that a world where the U.S. was producing 10% of the world's semiconductors, uh, Europe was producing 10% of the world's semiconductors, and the rest was being made in East Asia, the notion that that was a completely market-determined outcome, not a function of subsidies, not a function of intervention in the foreign exchange market, uh, that just doesn't ring true to me. Clearly, though, there's a risk that uh, that Intel in particular can't build a foundry business, that Intel can never catch up, and that TSMC, which is already complaining about the cost structure of its U.S. investments, uh, doesn't ever eventually uh, develop critical mass in the U.S. And so what I think is a necessary uh, effort may not turn out to be sufficient. Um, and the Chinese have faced some similar difficulties in their efforts to catch up at the, the cutting edge. Look, on the green energy transition, I think it will be a success. Um, it may be more costly than people uh, envisioned. Qualifying for the battery subsidies isn't just hard for uh, European auto manufacturers. It's actually going to be quite hard for a lot of US-based auto manufacturers. There isn't currently a North American or a North American plus Australia and Chilean battery supply chain. Uh, so there will be some risk associated uh, with the implementation of these policies. But compared to the alternative, 
I don't see how the U.S. in the long run really loses. The biggest risk to the U.S. would have been to miss out on the electric vehicle transition, to lag the world. Uh, and that would have also, uh, if you take climate change seriously, uh, meant that the U.S. wouldn't have been able to live up to its international commitments in climate change. So it's risky. Uh, I think there would be risk, significant risk, if this kind of approach were adopted uh, across the economy, rather than being focused on sectors where there are perceived to be strategic imperatives to be at the cutting edge of technology, or where there's a strong argument that uh, transitioning to new forms of energy uh, requires investment and that by spurring a wave of investment, you can change the cost structure. Set aside the important but separate debate about how friends are defined in the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the, the concerns that Europe and Korea have raised, fundamentally, I believe these policies uh, will succeed. I think they have to see, succeed, frankly, because it is hard to imagine and uh, that the U.S. can remain uh, a technological and military superpower and not be close to the frontier of the semiconductor industry. And it is hard to imagine how the U.S. can carry out a green transition without an electric vehicle industry. Okay. Um, Alicia, what's your view on the role of these subsidies for the U.S. economy? Do you differ in any way in terms of the positive effect they could have? Um, are they as much of a threat to Europe as many people in Europe seem to feel? And should Europe match these subsidies? Should we get involved in increased subsidization in Europe to match American and indeed Asian intervention? Well, let me start by basically agreeing with everything that has been said, uh, which means I'm not going to disagree even for Europe. But let me give you one more reason. I mean, I think we've heard uh, loud and clear that there's an issue of strategic competition here. I mean, it, it, that's what we're saying. And the, 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 the issue is, can we afford not being, I wouldn't say fully self-reliant. I, I would push a little bit um, right further on the point of South Korea and Europe, meaning this is not about the the U.S. doing it all on its own, I think that would radically increase the cost and change kind of the supply chain structure that we've come up with in, in the era of hyper-globalization. I think we need to rethink the fact that we're not here on our own, whether it's Europe, the U.S., Australia, etc., South Korea, but we also need to, to realize that uh, being extremely dependent on China for our energy transition, and this brings me to Europe, is extremely um, risky. And it is risky because even before starting, we're already importing over 80% of solar. Is already introducing export licensing for for basically both critical materials for electric vehicle batteries, but as well as solar panels, meaning warning Europe. Say if the Netherlands aligns uh, with Japan and the US on, on, on the chips ban and, and basically in, in imposing export controls to lithography machines uh, towards, I mean, exported to China, there you go. You have this, uh, you know, sword on your, on your head pointing right there and knowing that we can't afford um, 
missing out on China's solar panels for our energy transition at this point in time, more than ever, because of, of course, the war in Ukraine and what that means for, for, for our energy basket. So, so I would argue that it, it, we're not in normal times. I mean, if we had this discussion in, in a world where we don't have, you know, superpower um, competition or extreme rivalry, if you want to put it this way, maybe things would be different. It's not only about subsidies, it's about the lack, the lack of access to the inputs needed for our energy transition for reasons that are not economic. This is what we're talking about. And we've seen this already, in uh, whether willingly or unwillingly in terms of uh, disruptions in the supply chain in the past. Europeans just have to remember uh, the difficulties to run their automobile supply chain uh, at the time of uh, 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 zero COVID policies and, and, and the like. So, so, you know, we've learned that, again, it's not only about efficiencies, it's about access to those intermediate or even final goods for, for that matter, depending on, you know, where we stand. I, I mean, solar panels as such that, that we need. And, and, and that means that if we need to use subsidies to avoid that potential lack of, of those necessary goods, we have no choice because it, we're not talking about a world of you know, perfect competition whatsoever. This is a totally different ballgame. So whatever we've been, we've been told that would have been Pareto efficient doesn't, 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 doesn't run this way. I mean, that, it's not the world we're living in. So in that regard, I fully agree, but I, I just wanted to highlight that there's this uh, risk of access that goes beyond the cost. Okay. And, and that makes things very, very difficult for Europe and the US, in my view. Uh, yeah. Okay, so a security element to, 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 to the whole thing, as well as just, we, we can't just expect the market to deliver and not worry about the security yeah. dimension of it. Uh, Alicia, just a follow up for, for Europe, of course, yeah. we have the anti-complication. You know Brussels better than anyone. You know, even if we agree to this and we we initiated at yeah. European level, at EU level, uh, a European Inflation Reduction Act or the same subsidies. But of course, there's the perennial yeah. problem in Europe of how you give divide out the subsidies, who gets them. Yeah. So, you know, of course, there's an issue with the states yeah. in the US, but it, uh, fundamentally, it's 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 a it's it's a single country. We are much more competitive. Yeah. Individual governments are looking who gets yes. what. Some will lose out. How do you see in practice, even if we agree yeah. to a significant stimulus, do you think it would face major obstacles in terms of agreeing? Yes. And would that add to the inefficiencies? Because inevitably, political considerations in terms of dividing yeah. the money would come into play. I mean, you are right on, you know, uh, you hit the nail. Uh, we, Our um, industrial policies any type of national policy in Europe is so much harder than the US because we need to agree politically on how to design this. Um, let's bear in mind that the, uh, I mean, we, we're not already like, we're, I wouldn't say we are at zero now because um, next generation funds are partially, partially used for industrial policy. We have hydrogen, we have green in general, and there's been an agreement as to how to uh, share that, basically based on the fact that 
countries that would might have needed more support for the economy in the light of, of, of the pandemic might have reduced the amounts for kind of longer or structural uh, uh, transformation of their economies. But because at the end of the day, these funds came so late in the game, a lot of that is being used in a way already for industrial policy. So, so, so we've managed somehow, you know, to, to, to find a formula. The formula needs to come with uh, EU funding. This is crucial. We won't uh, eliminate all of the worries. I hear you. I mean, smaller countries might not have necessarily the industrial uh, uh, power or, you know, to, to, to conduct all of these investments in the way that, that favors its, its companies. I understand all of that. But at least if it's not going to put a lot of uh, heavyweight on their funding costs, it's already quite something. So, so the, the new Green Deal for Europe needs to come, and I think that's where Europe is heading, uh, from basically an enlargement of, uh, of the EU as basically a fiscal um, agent. So increasingly towards fiscal, um, towards the fiscal union. I mean, not full, but at least as far as industrial policy is concerned. That would solve the problem of pick, picking the winners, but let's bear in mind that that we might lose every winner because of the U.S. I mean, mm. everything we hear is companies uh, simply accepting the deal and going to the U.S. I mean, many of, of our uh, companies in the renewal sector just getting the subsidies from the U.S. So in a way, we have no choice. We really so have no choice. It's not only about China, it's about the U.S. And, and you're, you're hearing of significant numbers of companies actually making investment decisions, relocating to yes. the U.S. So that's yes. not a fear. You're actually hearing this no. is something that's happening. Yes, okay. yes. Good. At a company Brad. level. And, and, and the reason is not only the amount. I agreed with Brad that it's not about how big the subsidies are. It's more about the easiness of the process compared to Europe. Okay. So, so basically, I don't think we need to think of big subsidies. It's about effective subsidies. We need to think of an entrepreneurial state, you know, <laughs> Matsukato's yeah. view of the world. An entrepreneurial state with little money can create a lot of incentives. Think about a, a state that behaves like a central bank, basically that, that sets the direction without necessarily humongously distorting uh, incentives. Uh, and I think that's where we should be heading. Not big, big, big subsidies, but somewhat direct in subsidies. Uh, going back to the point of semiconductors, I cannot agree more, having spent already nearly three years in Taiwan. Whoever thinks that that industry came out of nowhere is wrong. TSMC received from water, electricity, subsidized electricity, you name it, and many others. So it, it is totally uh, absurd to think that these huge capex industries like semiconductors foundries in particular, have no support. What, what that? I mean, it's a 40 billion topics, you know, that of course they have foundry. No, because then, you know, prices would collapse if you think about it. We We're having a foundry. bit of a problem. But with we need to think. Connection, Alicia. Uh, sorry, I will finish here. Yes, I just finished by saying that we need to be smart with our subsidies. 
we don't need to replicate TSMC. We need to, to figure which semiconductors we need in Europe for our industries and go right there. And I finished. Okay, by, by coincidence, I'm in Taipei tonight and just earlier today, uh, somebody mentioned the biggest Taiwanese semiconductor company that half of its startup capital came from the state. And um, you know, you can't have a discussion with anyone in this town without the semiconductor industry coming up. So it's 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 carved out an extraordinary niche for itself in, in a global uh, globally significant strategic industry. Um, Brad, coming to you, just in terms of the rollout of those those Inflation Reduction Act subsidies, do you, do you have thoughts on how it's happening? How difficult it is to get these? Are these having a real already um, immediate effect right now? Do you see, as Alethea said, do you see uh, foreign businesses moving into the US? Well, let me make a, a general observation before answering your specific question. And the, the general observation is that there isn't a fixed pool of green investment such that more investment in the US necessarily means less investment in Europe. Uh, if there are attractive projects in Europe, those should still be funded. Uh, clearly, the Inflation Reduction Act has made uh, a set of projects in the U.S. much more attractive. And yes, I think you saw real uh, swings almost in anticipation of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, there have been uh, uh, large investments by uh, mostly by the American uh, auto manufacturers in increasing their electric vehicle uh, production. Uh, large investments in developing uh, a North American battery supply chain. Uh, there have been investments in uh, increasing domestic production of lithium, which is a key component uh, for batteries. Uh, I, I assume there will be investments in lithium processing as well, because that's a, a sector where China dominates. Uh, Intel, clearly in anticipation of the CHIPS Act, uh, is investing very large sums in foundries in Arizona and Ohio. Micron is making important investments in upstate New York. Um, there's no question that there is, is an effect. Uh, that effect will be augmented in part because of some of the difficulties the EU is facing uh, with higher energy costs. Uh, the, you know, the dirty little secret of a lot of clean technologies is that producing the core technology actually takes a lot of energy. Uh, so battery production in particular is energy intensive. And it may well be that uh, some European cars are running off uh, batteries made to European specifications in the United States. That's the kind of thing where uh, policy plays a role. That said, uh, you know, the, the factories being built by the CHIPS Act aren't yet up and running. They aren't yet producing. Uh, we don't know if they're going to meet the demanding requirements to be an efficient uh, manufacturer. The ability of the U.S. Uh, battery industry to scale up and move away from China on the very ambitious timeframe that Senator Manchin set out in the Inflation Reduction Act is very much an open question. I think the conventional wisdom is that a lot of batteries won't qualify for the subsidies simply because they won't be able to meet the, the demanding US and North American content requirements. So I think there's evidence that 
things are happening, but uh, the implementation execution challenges for the government, but also for the companies that are making these investments and are in effect, you know, moving the global location of certain supply chains. Uh, those are quite significant moves. A follow up on the whole antitrust picture. So certainly we in Europe, you know, on the one side, we have our state aid rules, which are being questioned. On the other hand, our competition policy, you know, both fundamental cornerstones of the EU project. I'm interested in the antitrust side of this from the US has either related to the increase in subsidization or separately have views on antitrust also changed uh, in the US and how, how competition policy should operate? Um, I think the debate on antitrust and competition policy is much more centered around uh, the tech platforms, uh, the Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Nexus. Uh, I, I don't think there's a significant debate in the U.S. about uh, whether the the subsidies being provided to the semiconductor are are anti-competitive. I think most people actually view uh, the subsidies as being pro-competition in the sense that uh, TSMC was almost alone at the cutting edge. Samsung was kind of a little bit lagging, and then. Uh, 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 Intel was way behind. So if we move to a situation where there are three effective competitors, I think that would be a net increase in competition. Same same general view in the auto sector. Okay. Uh, Alicia, your, your view on competition policy in Asia, which where you're based and you, you know well, uh, and also in terms of the, the implications for comp changing competition policy within the EU. I'd be interested in your perspective yeah. on, on both of those. Well, uh, first of all, uh, in Asia, I mean, talking about competition policy is a big <laughs> endeavor. I would argue that that's not the policy we generally discuss in this part of the world. And um, there's this idea that, but it's not only China. I mean, it's, it's quite a general thing. If you think about Singapore, if you think about South Korea, if you think about Taiwan, it's like every company has a role to play. It's, it's kind of a big sister, small sister, big brother, small brother kind of arrangement. And that's very different from our idea of competition policy. So, you know, any antitrust uh, agency I can I can tell you about Hong Kong, which has basically borrowed um, European antitrust policy is, 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 is basically not applicable. So I, I, I don't think uh, Asia is ready to put competition at the forefront of the of, of the discussion. China has argued that a lot of the crackdown that has happened in, on the tech sector was indeed because of competition policy. I frankly doubt it. Uh, I think there were other reasons in terms of uh, growing um, growing importance of the private sector in 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 where economies of scale were of the essence, meaning excessive dominance of of a bunch of of private private companies. Uh, rather than competition policy. That's that's my take. In some cases, if you think about the, for example, the the online education platforms, it was really more about uh, common prosperity, making sure that everybody, that, that, you know, that students wouldn't have enormously uh, bigger opportunities because of being able to pay for tutors online, et cetera, et cetera. So nothing to do with competition. So 
moving to Europe, which is a totally different ball game. I think competition is key for Europe because of um, the structure of the European Union. Yeah, we are 27, now 28 with Croatia states. And we need to compete uh, among each other, make sure that there's equal footing in, in, within us. I mean, among us, within the EU. Until very recently, we hadn't realized that competition was coming from outside of Europe and the risk was that subsidies elsewhere would basically distort our single market. That's, you know, the, the foreign subsidy uh, legislation that Europe has passed only recently. So for years, we hadn't realized that that was the issue that had not been covered um, in our competition policy. And, and, and this anti-subsidy um, legislation covers both uh, competition from the rest of the world, subsidies from the rest of the world, but also in a way, it's, it's a mixture of competition and trade policy, if I may say so. So there you go. Now if you think about we subsidizing uh, our own uh, industries, how are we going to deal with this anti-subsidy legislation? Is it a relative term? Is it something like, think about CBAM? I mean, I, I bring CBAM to the discussion because you could think of relative too. So we, 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 we tax uh, emissions. We want others to tax emissions. If there's a difference in, 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 in that price of, of, of carbon, we tax. You could think about this like if you subsidize beyond what we're doing, that's an unfair competition. You know, like you have to think relative now because of, of where we are heading. And among states, I think the, the European Union still has this, you know, this framework where we would have to, yes, eliminate, eliminate some of our competition rules, but again, under an equal footing. So you cannot go beyond others. And it's again, a relative uh, term rather than absolute term, which we need to introduce. Uh, that's all from my side. Okay, I, I, we could talk. I'd, I'd be interested to get uh, an American perspective, Brad, your your perspective on that idea of Europe's carbon adjustment tax. But we've only got five minutes. Um, I promise I didn't tee this question up, but it perfectly brings us to the final five minutes for uh, related to Ireland. Brian Daly asks if using taxes for smaller countries allows them to offset the benefits bigger countries might get from subsidies. Brad, you've written database views on, on Ireland's position in the global economy. I think it's fair to say that you don't think we've quite played fully fairly on this. Rather than discussing that, I'd be interested to get your views on what at a global level can be done beyond the corporation tax deal that would address the things that you have problems with and also at the US level, because it certainly seems to me that a lot of what's happening in terms of American companies avoiding tax in the US could be closed by US tax legislation rather than global issues. But very interested to hear your views. I know you've, you've, been, uh, you've been quite tough on us and we always need to hear those, those kind of views. Uh, well, I, uh, I'm, I'm flattered if you think I'm sort of tough on you because uh, I, I generally think I've held my punches and I could have been uh, uh, much uh, more uh, uh, cutting in some of my comments and I've been uh, relatively restrained relative to the magnitude of the distortions that I see emanating from Ireland. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. The ultimate solution to these types of problems, problems of tax competition uh, and uh, tax avoidance, uh, 
is to change the law in the United States. The U.S. Uh, tax law, the previous tax law, which allowed uh, indefinite deferral of foreign profits, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which has a much lower tax rate, minimum tax on international profit than on uh, U.S. profit. It basically creates an incentive for American pharmaceutical companies to find ways to produce outside the United States to sell back to the U.S. That's U.S. law. It is equally U.S. law that makes it relatively easy for a U.S. company to transfer its intellectual property offshore to change the valuation of that intellectual property through intercompany uh, transactions, and then to depreciate its own intellectual property brought, bought by subsidiary A of company uh, of the same company from sub subsidiary B, and then depreciate it and pretend like it's all not part of one company. So I think there's a ton of things that the US could do on its own that would make it much less attractive for US companies to move intellectual property and production to low-cost low jurisdictions. I do, though, think that, and I, I, as part of that, but I think it plays a supporting role as the global tax deal. The global tax deal sets up a minimum. The US, unfortunately, uh, doesn't have the votes to implement its share of the global minimum right now, and that's going to create a lot of problems for the next two years. Um, but conceptually, it is easier for the U.S. to tighten its policy if other countries are also tightening their policy. Um, but I think the core issue with respect to Ireland is a bit different than the use of tax subsidies for, say, uh, a factory that's building, uh, making semiconductors. And let me see if I can quickly explain why. When the U.S. is giving subsidies to Intel, it's giving a subsidy for the CapEx, for the actual investment. The, intellectual, the taxation of Intel's intellectual property isn't changed. With respect to countries like Ireland, many of the advantages of producing in Ireland aren't linked simply to the actual capital investments in Ireland. If only the capital investment received the lower 12 and a half tax 12.5% tax rate now going to 15, that would be one issue. The issue is that by having a tangible presence in Ireland in the pharmaceutical industry, you can move the intellectual property and the really big profits, which come with the intellectual property, to low cost or low tax jurisdictions. Similar issues with respect to Apple. Uh, it is hard to imagine that Apple is really an Irish company. Yet Apple right now, based on its own disclosure, books more of its profits in Ireland than in the United States. And it doesn't pay 12.5% because of the legacy implications of a transaction whereby Apple Ireland bought Apple Jersey. And so in that sense, Ireland has facilitated some of this tax competition, some of the uh, efforts to of, of the by by combining a small presence with the ability to have a very large tax break on your intellectual property, Ireland has attracted an enormous share of the world's profits to its tax base. I don't think you can solve this problem by changing Irish law alone, though. I do fundamentally think this is a problem in the U.S. tax law that the U.S. has to solve on its own.
We have hit the 45 minute mark. Alicia, I'd be very interested to hear your perspective uh, on that. Uh, maybe we would have you both back to discuss that very issue in greater detail at another time. Uh, very, It's a vital issue for, for the Irish economy and it, absolutely essential to hear different views on it, even though some of us may not be so thrilled to hear those views. But uh, uh, I conclude by simply thanking you both for taking the time today. Um, it's been a very insightful discussion and uh, it's greatly appreciated by both me and the Institute. So thank, thank you to both and wishing you and everyone watching a very good rest of the day.